Well, good morning. What a beautiful day to be in worship, to be with God's people. And uh, if you don't mind me saying so, you all are a beautiful congregation today. Yes, I'm speaking from my heart. Uh, One quick announcement on Wednesday night. I will be looking at the seventh parable in Matthew 13. And this is the end of a series. And when we do the end of a series, uh, we usually go upstairs and have fellowship and some soup and sandwiches. And so uh, you, you're welcome to join us Wednesday night at 7. Uh, the seventh parable kind of stands on its own. And the topic, the subject is what Jesus really said about end times. So that's the parable, the seventh one that you'll we'll look at Wednesday night. And then after the study, we'll go upstairs and have fellowship and uh, chips and sandwiches, some soup. I think some of the ladies are preparing soup. So hope you can join us. Well, Isaiah chapter 41, Isaiah chapter 41 for this morning. If you want to turn there, sometimes I'm not able to get the entire text up on the screen. Um, Isaiah 41 and verse 21 is where we'll begin reading for our text. Isaiah 41, verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring me your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know the outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us things to come. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know you are God's. Isaiah is living in a day when God's people, this is around 700 B.C., They couldn't decide who they wanted to worship. And there were many gods, almost as many gods as there were cities. And so God comes to his people through Isaiah and he says, it's almost like a courtroom. Uh, Set forth your case. What's the case for these idols to be worthy of worship? Here's something, here's a test God lays before them. He says, let them tell of things to come. Let them predict the future, verse 23. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know you are God's. This is a test of the true God and the true word of God. 
A few of God's most amazing prophecies is what I want to share with you this, this morning. We, there are so many. I, had, I, I, was, I was pained to leave some of this out. But nations and individuals and historical events, especially the predictions of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Let me begin with nations. Some nations God prophesied would be destroyed and never rise again. If you're in Isaiah and want to turn, Isaiah 13 verse 19 gives you one of these. Isaiah 13 verse 19. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms. This uh, Isaiah is writing about uh, a growing military and economic powerhouse, modern-day Iraq. Babylon was its capital. And Isaiah 13, 19 says, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor, the glory of kingdoms. That's how great it was. The pomp of the Chaldeans will become like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Uh, Isaiah 13, verse 20. It, Babylon, will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will make their flocks lie down there. Wild animals will lie down there. It will never be inhabited for all generations. And uh, uh, give me that picture of modern. This is Babylon today. These are the remnants of a kingdom, the glory of kingdoms. It would be 2,600 years ago. Fulfilled prophecy. No one lives there and hasn't since Isaiah's prediction. And that's not to say Iraq, uh, Babylon, by the way, this is about 50 miles from Baghdad. And Iraq, if you look at its population growth, it's almost like this. It's not that they don't need the space 50 miles from Baghdad. But that's the prediction. Give me the next one up. And, and this is another one. That you'll see in the background there a building. Saddam Hussein decided he would rebuild it. And that didn't go very well. And that's all that's left. But the destruction of Babylon, it will never be inhabited for all generations. No Arab will put his tent there. No shepherd will put their flocks there. Wild animals will be there. In Jeremiah 51, Isaiah isn't the only one who predicted it, but Jeremiah sent a messenger named Sirah, or Sirah to Babylon with a letter to all the Israelite exiles. And in that letter he says, Babylon... 
is, will be desolate forever. Take this letter, he told Sariah, he said, and tie a string around the letter, and then tie the other end to a stone, and take the stone and go throw it in the river Euphrates, right outside of, Baghdad, or out of Bab- outside Babylon. And he said, say this, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more. It's never coming back. Some prophecies tell of a nation, glorious, which will be completely annihilated and never restored. Some prophecies tell of a nation that will be judged and then restored. Moab is an example of this. You remember that Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, and she came from Moab. That's a little uh, distance across the Jordan River. And here's what Jeremiah 48 says of Moab. Woe to you, O Moab! The people of the idol Chemosh are undone. Your sins are taken, have been taken, your sons have been taken captive, your daughters have been taken to captivity. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days. Now, where is Moab today? Well, it's modern day Jordan, right across the, from the West Bank, going east. And give me, that's, you see Jordan here and Israel's on the left. Uh, give me the next one up. This is modern day Jordan or ancient Moab. What did God say through Jeremiah? Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab. And it has come to pass. Sometimes God predicts a nation will be destroyed and never rise again. Sometimes he predicts a nation will be destroyed and it will be restored. Sometimes he will predict that a nation will be judged and not completely destroyed or restored to its former glory, but simply restored in measure. That is, it will be reduced. It will be diminished, never to attain its former glory. An example of this is Egypt. You realize Egypt was at one time in the Middle East the greatest military power and economic power in existence. Ezekiel 29 said, Thus says the Lord God, At the end of 40 years I'll gather the Egyptians from the people among whom they're scattered. I will restore the fortunes of Egypt. I'll bring them back to their land and they will be a lowly kingdom. Ezekiel 29, 15. It shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. I'll make them so small they'll never again rule. Now that's a restored kingdom, but a diminished kingdom. This is what God said about Egypt, and it has come to pass. 
Egypt, once the mighty empire of Pharaoh, is now more like a third world country. Out of the top 10 economies in the Middle East, Egypt doesn't even make the list. They fought the British in 1882 and lost. They fought Israel in the Six-Day War in 1967. And by the way, they took 100,000 troops and fought Israel's 50,000 troops and lost. They have lost every war. They have been judged but not removed. They have been diminished permanently. What did he say? Ezekiel 29, 15. It will be the most lowly of kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. So God makes these specific predictions about the nations of the world. And even individuals, he makes predictions. Isaiah wrote, if you're in Isaiah and want to turn to this, this is Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1. He says in Isaiah 45 verse 1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations and loose the belts of kings. What that means is I'm going to, I'm going to give him victory. You know, you, when you, have you ever watched a Western, uh, maybe Gunsmoke or some, some of those old Westerns, and they say, drop your gun belt. You, you, so they drop their gun belt because the gun is on it. Well, the belt of kings would have the sword on it. So he says, I will give you, I will subdue nations before you and you will loose the belts of kings. In other words, he will conquer them. They'll surrender to him. And in Isaiah 45 verse 4, I name you though you do not know me. I name you. Now, if you'd have been reading this in Isaiah 45, this was about 720 B.C. Uh, the Jewish people listening to Isaiah would have thought, Cyrus, who is Cyrus? There, there was no one they knew named Cyrus who was conquering. In fact, a generation passed and no one knew of Cyrus. Another generation and no one knew of Cyrus. Another generation. It wasn't until the days of Daniel, which was like 150 years later, that you read this. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, God revealed things to Daniel. There's Cyrus. That's 150 years later. And God said, I'm going to give victory to a man named Cyrus and I'm going to give you his name even though he does not know me. It was a, he was a pagan king. He was a Persian king. And he's going to conquer everybody. That came to pass. I mean, 
I've been trying to, I've got uh, 13 or 14 grandkids, I forget. I've been trying to get my kids to name somebody Larry Jr. or Larry Edward. Just, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How do you get somebody 150 years later to call their son that a man who's been dead for 150 years predicted would live, Cyrus. That's the sovereignty of God. But I guess nothing is more specific in these Old Testament predictions than the prophecies of the future coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. As is predicted, Genesis 49.10 that the Messiah would be born from the tribe of Judah. There were 12 tribes. He would come from Judah. In Micah 5.2 he would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 7.14 he would be born of a virgin. In Isaiah 53.3 he would be despised and rejected. See, all of these came true in the New Testament. In Zechariah 9.9, he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey's foal. Not just the donkey, but the foal of a donkey. So specific. In Psalm 22.16, it says his hands and feet would be pierced. And I just noticed this week, it's not just the hands hands and feet would be pierced. It describes a crucifixion hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. His hands and feet would be pierced. That's Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, And they would gamble for his clothes. Came to pass. Isaiah 53 and 9, he would make his grave with the rich. And we know Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, came and asked for his body and buried him in his own grave. These are all specific promises given by God and come to pass in the New Testament. So that if you hold this up to the light and examine these things, I am telling you, this shows and proves the validity of God's Word. And so when he says, hey, here's a test for all these gods. Let them bring forth some predictions. Let them give us some prophecies. Make your case, he says. But I guess one of the most amazing of these predictions of Christ comes in Zechariah chapter 11. I mean, all of them are precise. Uh, Just unfathomable how Jesus could could not be the Messiah. He has to be the Messiah with these prophecies. But turn to Zechariah chapter 11. Now, if you want to know where Zechariah is, it's not hard to find. You go to the last book in the Old Testament, which is Malachi, 
and you back up one book to Zechariah. Go to the last book in the Old Testament and then just back up one book to Zechariah chapter 11. And it is the prediction that somehow God is going to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Now how's that going to happen? And here's the context. Zechariah chapter 11, beginning in verse 9. Here's what God says. So I said, I will not be, I will no longer be your shepherd. That is an ominous statement. It's, the, the relationship of God to Old Testament Israel is coming to an end. Zechariah and Malachi are the last books in the Old Covenant. And God announces after the all hundreds of years of covenant through Moses that I had, the Old Covenant's coming to an end. I will no longer be your shepherd. You will no longer be my flock. So what it'll be destroyed, let it be destroyed. Uh, so verse 10, Zechariah eleven ten. I took my staff, as a shepherd you would have a staff. I took my staff favor. See, he had favor on Israel. All through the old covenant story, even in their unfaithfulness, God protected them, he delivered them. He rescued them, he answered their prayers, he sent them prophets. He had favor on them. I took my staff favor, verse 10, and I broke it, annulling the covenant. Wow. This is the end of the old covenant. My, the favor of the old covenant relationship with Israel, he took that like a staff of a shepherd, and he broke it, signifying he's done with it. I will no longer be your shepherd. And then God says, verse 11, So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching knew it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, Zechariah 11, look at verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me wages. If not, you can keep it. In other words, if it's, you know, we, we're looking at this relationship as we look back, all the way back to Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and, and entering covenant with Old Testament Israel. He says, look, I've done a lot for you. Amen? If you start from Mount Sinai and go all the way forward, I mean, he brought them out of Egyptian bondage. He fed them in the wilderness for 40 years. He gave with manna from heaven. He gave them water out of a rock, quail that would fly eye level so they could reach and grab one and have meat to eat. He raised up Moses who gave them the Ten Commandments. He raised up deliverers like Gideon and Samson, prophets like Samuel, kings like David and Solomon. 
So God has just blessed Israel all through the Old Testament. And God says, okay, now that the relationship has come to an end, would you like to settle? Maybe you feel like you owe me something. So they huddle. You know, he has done some things for us, they said. So he... (laughs) He says in verse 12, I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. And if not, you can keep it. And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver in Exodus 21 verse 32 was the price that was paid for someone's slave that had been gored by a bull. And so he wanted to settle up. So he'd say, well, you can give, I think it's probably 30 pieces of silver. I mean, that's what you would give for somebody who's now, you know, maybe he's going to die. Maybe he's handicapped. He's certainly reduced in capacity. Give me 30 pieces of silver for this gored slave. That's what Israel said to God in Zechariah 11, well, here's what you've been worth to us. I can't imagine such ingratitude. And and yet, you know what? We've done it, haven't we? What's God worth to us? And many times, it's like, well, not that much. I'll give him the price of a car that won't start. And that's what they offered to him. And you know what the Lord said, verse 13, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was valued by them, verse 13. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. It's got to go to the potter, but first it goes to the house of the Lord. Now remember, this is a prophecy. How is Israel going to value God at 30 pieces of silver, which is money that's going to end up in the house of the Lord and to a potter all at the same time? Now, I tell you, unravel that enigma. (laughs) And then you come to the New Testament. And here's what happens. Judas, the Pharisees are trying to arrest Jesus and Judas comes to them in Matthew 26, verse 14 and says, I can deliver him to you. How much will you give me? Zacharias said God would be valued by Israel at 30 pieces of silver. They're standing in the face of Jesus, God in the flesh, and they confer with each other and they say to to Judas, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Bingo, there's one element. But how's it end up in the house of the Lord? Judas goes out, becomes grief-stricken, and in in Matthew 27, he changes his mind brings the money back, throws it down into the temple. 
They said, no, we don't, we don't want it anymore. He said, you keep it. I'm not, I'm not taking it. And he went and hung himself. Well, there it is in the house of the Lord, as Zechariah said. But how's it going to get to a potter? And the Pharisee said, well, this is blood money now, so we, we, we can't keep it. Let's go buy a field for, to bury people. And somebody said, I know a potter that's got a field for sale. And they took the money from the house of the Lord that they valued God as, and they gave it to a potter. Voila, fulfilled in every detail, the enigma unscrambled, the prophecy came true. What an amazing thing is this. So I am here this morning to tell you that hundreds of years previous, God can say to a nation, you will be destroyed and never built back. Or he can say to a nation, you will be destroyed, but you will be restored. Or he can say to a nation, you will be restored, but diminished permanently. He can speak of a man and name him 150 years before he exists. And he can speak of Christ, what tribe he's from, where he's born, born of a virgin, how he'd be treated, whether he'd be crucified, and whether he would, where he would be buried, what he would be sold for, the very details of his final days. And this book that we hold in our hand, this holy Bible, I can tell you with over 100% certainty, this book is true. Say amen, somebody. I've just given you enough proof to put faith in Jesus Christ if you've never heard of it until today. So Isaiah, in our text, our original text, said, you, bring me your proof. What's your proof that your God is the true God? The Old Testament is full of me giving my proofs. I had to throw out half my sermon because I didn't have time for, for this, for all of it. I just gave you the cream of the crop. But let me give you... Three quick things that I want you to take home with you. Number one, the Word of God is reliable and accurate and without error in any part from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Hallelujah. We've got a Bible. And it's the Word of God. And the proof of it is the prophecies in it. I had uh, some years ago some sweet Muslim men who were medical students and they were doing residency at McLaren. And they started attending our church on Bristol Road. They came for several months till they finished their residency. And we were friends. They gave me a Koran and I gave them a holy Bible. <laughs> Amen. And 
The one I gave them cost a lot more, I might add, than the one they gave me. But this Koran, they're not that long. Do you know? There's not a single prophecy in it. Ah. In fact, you find me a book of any religion anywhere in the world that's not the Holy Bible and you'll find it void of prophecies. Because that's one thing they can't do. God is not afraid to predict the future. Because <laughs> he orchestrates it. That's one thing. We have a true book. You got it. You found it. If this book is true, here's another thing. We have a true Jesus. Because the book is about Jesus. We have the true Savior. We know the way of salvation. Praise God. And then number three, the salvation message, the gospel message is true. If the book is true and we have a true Savior, then we have a foundation for our faith that will stand the test of time and eternity. Hallelujah. As the hymn writer put it, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who to Jesus for refuge have fled. Hallelujah! If you're glad to be in the truth... Glad to have the word. Glad to know Jesus. Say amen. amen. We got it. I'm happy. How about you? Good. Let's take up the offering. <laughs> All right. Ushers, you come. And let's celebrate being in the truth of God as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. What a wonderful word is this. What a wonder that it is. We stand in awe and we stand upon its truths and we ask your blessing upon this message to the hearts of the hearers. May they never forget this word. In Jesus' name, amen.